Thank you, Justin. Frank, Linda, Sarah, all the kids, grandkids, we love you so, so very, very much. Um, <clears throat> we want to bring some things to your attention today. I realize that we have a time frame that we need to stick with, and, and we will. Justin, could you uh, left my water, if you could help me, please. Um, we want to talk about a word that if you're familiar with the New Testament, you come across the word from time to time. It's the word delusion, delusion. When someone is wrong, we say, oh, they're mistaken. If someone has drawn the wrong conclusions, we say, you didn't think this through. But there's a state where someone is delusional. And when they are delusional, they produce one mistake after another because their processing is flawed. The information, the way they think, or what have you, is flawed. And the concept of delusion is found in the New Testament, especially in regard to the last days. So I'm asking the Holy Spirit to touch our hearts as we talk about the word delusion, because I want to tell you, God is doing something very special that I want to tell you about. But before we do that, let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Look at the screen or uh, in your notes, wherever you have it. And let's pray this special prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your help. Now, <clears throat> when we talk about delusion, as I said, it's usually connected to the idea of the last days. And I tell you, in the last 250 years in particular, there has been um, such an emphasis on the last days, and it has grown exponentially. It has grown. Now, it's always been at the heart of the church. And I want to give you a caution, loved ones. The easiest thing for Christians to do is to dismiss the idea of the last days and the return of the Lord because the church has been wrong so many times over the last 2,000 years. We think this is the Antichrist. I got a great article explaining why Benito Mussolini is the Antichrist. And then whenever Hitler came, it said, no, Hitler's the Antichrist. Mussolini's just the forerunner of the Antichrist. Well, I don't think Hitler or Mussolini was the Antichrist, but I can tell you something I believe with all of my heart. They certainly operated in the spirit of Antichrist. The Bible says, now not all churches agree with this, but I think it is beyond uh, contradiction I think the Bible says that as we move deeper and deeper into the last days, we need to understand there are three manifestations of Antichrist. Number one, there is the false uh, spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist. John said it's already come into the world. And it's not just false spirit of Antichrist, they're false teachers of Antichrist. Anybody that teaches and denies the deity of Christ and the essentials of the gospel, they may be called reverend, they may be called mega reverend, but they are not true ministers of the gospel because they are denying the deity and the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're false teachers of Antichrist. Um, and let me say this. I know that we are in an age of tolerance. We are dem it's demanded of us to be tolerant. We're not even allowed to disagree with anyone without being called a socialist or a racist or a communist or a hater. But I want to tell you something. While I believe we ought to live lives of tolerance, our tolerance does not extend to lies about Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Christianity is a very exclusive 
doctrine, uh, doctrinal set, and we believe that no matter what you've got right, if you're wrong about Jesus, you're wrong. That we really believe that with, with all of our hearts. Now, <clears throat> with that being said, I have to say this. There is a difference between uh, delusion and being disappointed. Disappointed, you just say, oh, I thought this would happen, you know, and it didn't. So I'm disappointed. Moses killed the Egyptian, and one of the things that it says is that he thought the Israelites would understand what he was doing. But they didn't understand what he was doing, so he was disappointed. We can be sure of something, but when somebody doesn't see it, we are disappointed. And that can lead to anger. Sometimes it's not just disappointment. Sometimes we're deceived. I mean, we really, we, we didn't just get it wrong. We really put all our eggs in that basket and we realized that we were tricked. But usually, if you're a truly objective person, you work through your mistakes. You work through your mistakes and then you say, I was wrong and you move on with life. That's being deceived. Deceived is not a permanent condition. The dangerous thing about delusion is that delusion does not necessarily have to be uh, permanent, but it starts running the risk of becoming a permanent state of mind. A person that is delusional is often beyond the ability of grasping reality unless they are set free by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to listen to me, loved ones. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he was talking about when he went to heaven. He said when the Holy Spirit comes, he said he will lead you into all truth and he'll tell you the truth about sin and righteousness and judgment. You and I cannot even understand the gospel intellectually without the help of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit doesn't explain to us what sin is, if the Holy Spirit doesn't explain to us what righteousness is, if the Holy Spirit doesn't explain to us the principles of judgment, we will go down a path and create a false image of God, a, a false image of the gospel, a false image of church, and we will become delusional. Paul put it this way to the uh, Thessalonian church in 2 Thessalonians 2.2. He said, because these folks were not willing to accept the nature of truth, God turned them over to a lie, delusion, that they should believe a lie and be damned. That's why when you read the book of Revelation, it's so terrifying because several places you see God pouring out judgment on the earth and, and you'd say, boy, they ought to get the message. But what does it say? And they repented not. And they repented not. And they repented not. And it's because of the nature of delusion. Now, <clears throat> I want to tell you, all that is not true is not necessarily delusional. It sometimes we just kind of lay hold of something because it's entertainment. Uh, let me just explain to you the kind of thing that's harmless misinformation. I, uh, I grew up uh, in the 60s, which was the age of gun smoke. My, my lunchbox was gun smoke. Um, I always wanted a Sunday school teacher that looked like Miss Kitty. I loved, I loved gun smoke. And if you remember Gunsmoke, if you're old enough to remember it, well, it's still in syndication. You can watch it today. In the early years, the two main characters besides Doc Adams and Miss Kitty were um, Chester, the deputy, and Matt Dillon. Now, the funny thing about it is that both of those men interviewed for the role of Matt Dillon. They were both tall. Uh, James Arness, like 6'7", Chester's like 6'4". They were both powerfully built. They were both athletic. And, um, and they decided that Chester needed to be filled by Dennis Weaver, but he was so much like James Arness that they said, we've got to give Chester a weakness. And you know, if you've watched Chester, you know he's got a bad leg. Uh, his right leg doesn't work. It's stiff. And uh, Chester was, was very obviously in the minds of the viewers less than the marshal. But what was amazing was this. 
um, they said that as you, the, uh, the uh, actors would be resting there in their chairs on the set, that when the director said, it's okay, time to shoot, you would see James Arness struggle to stand because he was on the amphibious landing at Anzio and had his leg nearly blown off. And James Arness walked with a limp. All of his life, he walked in pain. But he would stand up and he would rub his leg and he would get his bearings and then he would just bite through the pain and walk like the U.S. Marshal. You'd never know he had a problem when the fact of the matter is uh, in the later years of Gunsmoke, he couldn't do any of his fight scenes or anything because his leg was so bad. Chester would hobble up to the scene standing next to the Marshal that was walking with absolutely no problem. And you just, you prayed in the spirit for Chester trying to hope he could get from point A to point B. But what you didn't know is that Chester was a second team Olympic runner. It was all fake. But it wasn't fake with the idea to delude. Our, our world wasn't, wasn't connected to whether the marshal could walk right and Chester couldn't. That was just something they used to differentiate the character. It's entertainment. And loved ones, what I'm trying to say is you can be wrong about things that just don't matter. You can be wrong about things that just don't matter. It's what we call our entertainment value. But when you let that carelessness carry over into life issues, something becomes very, very difficult to navigate. I want to tell you, I believe this with all of my heart, we are on the brink. I want you to hear me now because it doesn't feel like it right now. But we are on the brink. We are poised to face the greatest battle that America and the church in America has faced in all of our history. We're about to fight the biggest battle that we've ever fought. And there is incredible pressure to do it the way of the world. We are also poised for the greatest victory. I believe God is about to set some things right in so many realms of American life. Now you've got to be careful saying that because you've got to remember the righteousness or the wrath of man doesn't work the righteousness of God. I'll tell you where we are. My favorite place in Israel, one of my favorite places is, is uh, out in the desert. It's called En Gedi. It's a place of one water hole and a, mount, uh, a mountain there with all kinds of caves. It's the place where David was when he was running from Saul. And Saul and his men went into the cave to rest, not knowing that David and his men were deeper into the cave. And if you remember the story... David and a handful of his men came up to Saul who was asleep and with a sword in his hand, they said, God has given you the chance to make things right. And that is one of about three instances in the story of David that made him king. He had the opportunity to do one of two things. He had the opportunity to kill Saul. Some of his men were saying, do it. And David all of a sudden realized God is changing Israel. Saul did not deserve to be king. Saul did not deserve to be in authority. God was doing something to change the fiber and the fabric and the structure of that nation. But praise God, David had enough sense with sword in hand to stop and say, God is bringing a change what is my place? What is my role? How do we do this? And I know that we're in a, like I said, we're in a culture right now where if you disagree with somebody or offer an alternative view, you, you don't have that liberty. You are trashed. But I want you to understand something. The church has got to decide over the next few months, we've got to decide if we're going to kill Saul or we've got to decide, are we going to be a part of what God does to establish something new? Now, we're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. I'm, I get so many questions. We've got to understand, 
This is going to be a time in the, in the months ahead. I, I, I think I said this. I'm not sure if I did. But the Lord spoke to me and, a, and he had spoken the same thing to a Methodist pastor friend of mine that in the history in the Church of America, the preaching that is done from our pulpits in the next six to eight months will be the most important preaching that the church has ever done in America. Pastors have to rise up. Churches have to rise up. And every child of God, it doesn't matter that you're right. It doesn't matter that your cause is justifiable. You've got to decide, am I going to kill Saul or am I going to join the Lord in his battle against Saul? And part of that, we have to understand that there is so much emotion woven into it. I'm not saying this is right and this is wrong. I'm saying one of them is right and one of them is wrong. And we have got to let the Lord lead us to that place. <laughs> now, um, what we've got to decide is are we going to kill Saul or are we going to be a part of the Lord's dealing with Saul? I got three amens. That's not, not too bad. But we begin our understanding of the next six months. We begin our understanding by talking about some foundational questions. And the first question is this, are we in a state of delusion have we separated ourselves from delusion? And to understand whether or not we're deluded, we have to ask the question, are we in the last days? Now, we've all heard that we're in the last days all of our lives. All, you know, Hal Lindsey wrote Late Great Planet Earth and said that the generation wouldn't pass before Jesus returns. And I'll tell you, we need to quit criticizing these guys. Uh, what, what they were struggling with back then is the same thing our wonderful prophets struggle with today. We hear a word from the Lord and we don't understand we're getting part of a puzzle instead of a grand, thorough understanding. I don't know of anybody that I think understands it all. I don't know of anybody that I think is right about it all. I think I am up to five, six minutes at a time. Then I'll, then I'll read something and I say, yeah, that's stupid, that's stupid. I can't believe you wrote that. And then I think, well, Ramona must have come in and written it. I wouldn't have said something like that. No, you understand what I'm saying. The, the, the prophetic community works as, as um, part of a puzzle and we need to subject ourselves to one another and, and hear what the Lord really is saying. But I do want to say this about the last days. Are we in the last days, pastor? You know what they said? hundred years ago, Jesus is coming. You know what they said in the 1980s, you know, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming 1988. Then they recalculated it to 89 reasons Jesus is coming in 18, uh, 1989. Uh, loved ones, obviously those predictions were not right, but I want to tell you, there's a spirit in the church that says, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we need to be careful that because we don't understand everything, we don't poo-poo everything. We need to understand that it's far more dangerous to discount the idea of the last days than it is to speculate what if about the last days. Um, but this is what the scripture teaches. When John the Baptist came and started preaching, and when Jesus began his ministry and died on the cross, that was the inauguration of the last days. The last days is not a seven-year period, although I believe there's a seven-year period at the end of time, or the end of the age, I should say. But that's not the last days. The last days began when John said, the kingdom of God has come, and Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come. That began the last days, and the last days was the beginning of the end of an era. It began with Jesus' first arrival. It will culminate with his second coming. And so, yes, we have been in the last days. That's theologically correct. You say, well, so last days means nothing. We've always been in the last days. Oh, no, it means something. Because John wrote to the church um, way back, and the, the time was probably in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And he said, we are now in the last days. And you read what he's saying and what John is saying is we're moving into the last of the last days. 
Have you ever gone on vacation and you're enjoying vacation so much and you say, oh, I just don't want to go back. And the kids say, mama, daddy, when are we going to have to go back home? When are we going to have to leave the pool? When are we going to have to leave Disney World or whatever? And you say, well, it's two days away. It's one day away. To, this is the last day. And those kids get up and at breakfast, it's not too catastrophic. But you've got breakfast of the last day, which is the last day of the last days. Then you've got lunch of the last day of the last days. Then you've got supper at the last day of the last days. And by nine o'clock that night, they are screaming, they are yelling, they are uh, inconsolable because they are in the last hours of the last days. And we got to understand, loved ones, I believe that we are moving. I, I mean, it's just a logical position to take. We are closer to the return of Jesus today than we were yesterday. I believe that we are in the last of the last days. I know that Jesus may not return for a hundred years. He may not return for 500 years. But if we're understanding the signs of the times, and if we're understanding the book of Revelation in particular, I think it's at least arguable that we have approached the last of the last days. I don't know when the tribulation period will begin. I don't know when that seven-year countdown begins. But we need to understand that one thing about living in the last days. You guys still with me? Okay. One thing about living in the last days, you've got to understand that as we move into the last days, we're still going to have the puzzle pieces. We're still going to have a sense of this is what it feels like. And we have to say, Lord, lead us into all truth. Lead us into all truth. Um, there are streams that feed into this river of the last days. Number one is the, is the outlook of prophecy. Um, I have dear friends that love Jesus with all of their heart that believe the book of Revelation. They take what's called a preterist view. And what that means is the book of Revelation was written about the fall of Rome. And there's nothing prophetic uh, written in the book of Revelation. I disagree wholeheartedly. I think it's a skewed and flawed approach um, to studying the book of Revelation. But I, at the same time, I understand that it's not, I mean, with all respect to the left behind guys, it's not as easy to map it and stay step one, step two, step three, step four, step five. The book of Revelation, I don't think is written entirely chronologically. I think it is written cyclically. I think we see the events of the end days appearing maybe three times in the book of Revelation. And I think you're going to make a mistake. You say, oh, I'm going to call the assemblies of God. Well, my presbyter's here and you can just talk to him. But um, I think it's a mistake to look at Bible prophecy in Revelation and say, step one, step two, step three, step four, step 21, step 23. I think at least three times the story of the end is told in the book of Revelation. And what we better learn to do is understand the cycles and the pictures and the images rather than trying to force a chronology. You say, Pastor, I think you're wrong. I could be. I've been wrong before. It's hard to believe. But I do want you to understand this. Do not be bullied by, and it sounds so spiritual, and again, they love the Lord, but I hear it all the time. We don't believe that things are going to get worse and worse till Jesus comes. The church is the overcoming church, and we're going to change the world, and we're going to bring Jesus back. I have a friend that says, I will never embrace an eschatology that's not a victorious eschatology. Now, what he means by that is things aren't going to get worse unless the church gets better, and we're going to set everything thing in order for Jesus to come back. But I want to tell you something. When you read the book of Revelation, it's a horrible picture. It's a time described so bad. Jesus said this. Jesus said this. This wasn't Hal Lindsey. This was Jesus. He said, unless God shortened the days, mankind could not survive it. That's bad. That's bad. But don't tell me the book of Revelation is not victorious eschatology. You say it gets worse and millions of people die and a third of the earth dies and a fourth of the earth dies and there's a flood of demons. That doesn't sound victorious to me. It's because you quit reading too soon. Jesus sets everything right. 
Jesus overcomes every barrier. Jesus overcomes every obstacle. I believe in a, in a victorious eschatology and I don't have to set aside the end days to have a victorious eschatology. You say, well, I, Pastor, I was just taught that Jesus is going to come. We're going to be taken out. And loved ones, there's several views. And I, I personally like the one. It's not the one I embrace as, as number one. But I, I personally like the one where things get bad. Jesus bails us out and we're home free. We're, 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 eating, we're eating manna and hummus while the world goes to hell, you know, during the tribulation. That's the one we've been trained with. And loved ones, you can defend that position. I'm not saying that position is, is wrong, but I tell you what the fruit of that position has been in so many churches and churches like the Assemblies of God and Southern Baptists and other groups. We need to understand um, if, if you don't understand the position of a pre-tribulational rapture, and if you don't understand the purpose of the tribulation, if you don't understand the last days, you will end up either living in fear or indifference. Saying, well, we're not going to be out of here. That's, that's the world's problem. Loved ones, any theology that takes you out of caring for the lost, any theology that takes you out of wanting to redeem the world is a flawed theology. Any theology that creates a fear in you instead of an anticipation that Jesus is coming is flawed. And even if that doctrine is right, please understand this. We have allowed it to generate fear and indifference, and that is sinful. God says these are the end days that are coming. There's going to be delusion, but you have a role. Um, I, and I, I think of people like Lance Wall now that I think a lot of. Uh, he's taught the seven mountains. You know, the church needs to conquer these seven mountains. I don't have any problem with that. But you've got to understand this. We do not teach that we are going to redeem the world by claiming seven mountains. We do our best. We go after the mountains. We do everything we can to change the world. We do everything we can to bring light over darkness. I don't have any issue with that. But the bottom line is that Paul makes this very clear. The Antichrist and his work and the kingdom of darkness will be destroyed by one thing, and that is the appearance of the Lord at his glorious coming. You say, well, what about this? What about our job? What about our command to do that? I'm not arguing with those things. I'm simply saying, if you believe the church is going to solve this, and then Jesus will come back and say, y'all did a good job, I think you are grossly mistaken. But my dad was a pretty good end-time theologian. He would go to work, and he would say, and you've got to understand, my dad, he was not abusive in any way. But I was, I was in middle school, I guess, before I understood that Labor Day, my dad told me Labor Day was a holiday where kids stayed home to help dad do yard work. <laughs> I, I was told that, honestly. And uh, as I got older, I knew I, I, I couldn't do everything. I couldn't do it the way my dad wanted it. I couldn't do it enough. My brothers went through the same thing. And I got some insight and some liberty one time when my dad said, now, son, this is what I want you to do. And I was probably 14, 15 years old. He said, I want you to do this, 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 this. He gave me a list of things that he wanted done. And it, and it really bothered me because I didn't want to disappoint my dad, but I knew I couldn't get all of this done for two reasons. I didn't have enough time and I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't big enough. I couldn't get to some things that he wanted me to take care of. And I was just terrified. I thought, I'm going to let my dad down. And this is what he said to me that set my heart free. He said, oh, I know you can't do everything, but I want you to know what I want the yard to look like. I want you to know what I want done. He said, so you tackle this list. You do everything you can. And this is what he said. You work as though you were going to have no help. But understand, what you can't get done, when I get back, you and I will finish. And I believe that's a proper view of the end times. The church needs to be involved in the transformation of society. We should not just say, well, we're going to hell in a handbasket. We ought to stand against racial injustice. We ought to stand against social injustice. We ought to stand against human trafficking. We ought to make our neighborhoods safe for our kids. We ought to do all of these things. And the church ought to do everything we can to make it 
happen. But we've got to remember two things. Some of it cannot be done till Jesus comes. And some of it, the most devious temptation will be for us to do it in the strength of the flesh to kill Saul instead of work with the battle of the Lord. Now, he's going to destroy it at the brightness of his coming. Um, Paul said, there's the spirit of Antichrist. There are false teachers of Antichrist. Uh, John, John said this. Well, Paul intimated it too. And then the, the third thing, though, that not every church believes is that there will be a man called the Antichrist himself. Paul describes him in Second um, uh, Thessalonians. I want to go ahead and read the text. Don't worry. You, you say, oh, man, you haven't even got to the beginning of the notes. That's okay. You, you've got the full stuff, but we're not going over all of it. But I do want to read the verse that we begin with on our notes there. And it's from 2 Timothy 3. Now, we could just as easily have taken the top of the mountain verses. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith the Lord, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And upon everybody, I'll pour out my spirit. Woo, I love those verses. We could just as easily as point out those, but I'm going to point out some from the other side because of delusion. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And some of you are writing this down. You're saying, this is where I work. This is where I work. Well, it's right there in your notes holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Avoid such men as these. You say, well, man, if that's the environment we live in, there's no hope. No, there is hope because you are not children of darkness. You are children of light. You are not given to delusion. You are given to truth. Our job is to watch our spirits so that we do not allow delusion to rob us of hope. And guys, I just want to tell you, you've got to learn to be careful who you listen to, whether it's on the Internet or whether it's on the news networks or whether it's in the neighborhood Bible study. There is very clearly a push toward delusion. You can find anything being taught if you look for it. You can find anything being taught. And that's why Paul said to Timothy, a good pastor reminds people of what they already know. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He says, when the church goes through hard times and is discouraged, she doesn't need encouragement. She needs doctrine. The first time I read that, I thought, wow, this is a misprint. Uh, what he meant to say is they don't need doctrine, they need encouragement. But I read further, he was saying, we don't need encouragement because encouragement can be based on falsehood and delusion. We need to bring people back to the Word of God. We need to stop listening to all the commentary, and sometimes you need commentary. We need to stop listening to the news, and sometimes you need news. We need to stop listening to the logic of perverted world systems, and we need to get back into the world. You say, well, pastor, it just doesn't seem to be working. I told you years ago that before we began to win this battle, we would be convinced we had lost this battle. I told you years ago that it would appear with certainty that the church in America had lost before it became very evident that the church in America had won. And loved ones, we are about to face the greatest battle we've ever known, but we are about to also receive the greatest victories imaginable. But it won't happen by caving into delusion. It won't happen by using the methods of this world. It won't happen, you know, by, by the methods that we think. We're in a world right now where the Bible says that victory is won by understanding up and down. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of darkness. But we're in a world that says there is no up and down, only right and left. So we've got a society where even in the church, we have said, I have to belong to the clan. 
to make my view understood. I've got to belong to Black Life Matters to make my view understood. I've got to belong to the Republican Party to make my view understood. I've got to belong to the Democratic Party to make my view understood. And loved ones, I want to tell you, no matter what virtue there may be in any kind of organization, if it's based on delusion, it'll take you the wrong way. You can kill Saul. You can have the victory. You can take the life of the oppressor. But if David had done that, he would have become just as corrupt as Saul. This is amazing. I wish I was out there to hear it. Now, let me tell you. Let me tell you three things that we need to understand about delusion. This is basically in your notes. Number one, there will be three things to look for during the latter days. This is what the Bible says about the last days. Um, you know, I know everybody's saying, I'll be glad when we get by this. Maybe by Christmas we'll be back to normal. I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. I know we're going into a battle. And I don't know if it's going to be three weeks or three years. I just don't know. But I'm telling you, loved ones, I'm telling you, just as pastors of this church, I'm not trying to impact the political conventions. I'm, I'm speaking to my congregation. We need to be sure that our lives have set aside delusion and that we have settled on Scripture and that for every Saul we know needs to be displaced, we need to understand that every chance I've got to kill Saul is not necessarily a God-given moment. What will the Lord do? Um, here are the three things that the latter days promise. The times will be difficult. They're not going to be easy. Uh, and I hear this over and over again. And you, I'll tell you where I hear it the most. Just a whiny butt person. And I'm going to tell you who it is. I hear this from this person the most. Irritates the daylights out of me. I just want things to go back the way they were. Yeah. It's me. It's me. I say that. But the times will be difficult. It's Jesus compared it to a woman going into labor. And I don't mean to be crude, but when a woman has a baby, her body is never exactly the same as it was before. I don't mean that to be crude. That's nature. That's the way it is. And we are about to enter an age where the church of the Lord Jesus is not going to be exactly as it was before because God's ripping away darkness. God's ripping away carnality. God's ripping away the flesh. The times are difficult, number one. Here's the second thing. Character will be marginalized. He says there will be people whose only thing they're interested in is their self-interest. Galatians 5 and Romans 7, you have those scriptures in your notes. It will be a time when flesh decides to exalt itself above spirit. So during these times, remember, we, we are in the fight of our lives right now. And, and I thank God for, I'm not trying to make a political statement, but I, but I want to try to put something in perspective. I, I, whether you agree with Governor McMaster or not, or whether you're a Democrat or Republican or not, I want to say thank you, Governor McMaster, for trying to guard our liberties as, as a church. You know, he says we'll never be put under the restrictions that some of these other states are. And, and I, I believe that he means it. And I want to say thank you, Governor McMaster. But I also want you to understand there are churches in America in some places that they don't have that liberty. They don't have that blessing. Now, I think we've got three things. I think we've got people that are trying to work with houses of worship. I think we've got people that are hurting houses of worship, but that's not their intent. They're just overwhelmed, don't know what to do. But I also think there are people that have an agenda. I think there are people that see this as a crisis in which they can shut down the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it may not be happening here, but we need to pray for the church across America because the times are difficult and character is marginalized. And here's the third thing that will mark the difficulty. Many will have a form of godliness. But, they, but it denies the power. They are powerless to produce salvation. They are powerless to change lives. And it's time that somebody said it. And, and I know people are saying it. Church is not church because they have church on the sign in front of the, their building. Uh, a pastor, just because a man's called reverend doesn't mean he's a man of God. 
Just because a woman's called reverend doesn't mean she's proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many will have a form of godliness, but have no power working in their ministry to change lives or produce salvation. Let me read another passage to you. And uh, this is the last one I think that I'll read today because we're beginning to run out of time. 2 Thessalonians 2, and I know the last couple of weeks have been a little bit longer, but it's because of the way we've set the service. We're going to try to cut back a little bit next week. But 2 Thessalonians 2, now we do implore you by the very certainty of Christ's coming and of our meeting uh, him together to keep your heads and not be thrown off balance by any prediction or message or letter purporting to come from us and saying that the day of Christ is almost here. Don't let anyone deceive you by any means whatsoever. See, number one, Paul says, keep your head now. Calm down. That day will not come before there arises a, a definite rejection of God and the appearance of the lawless man. There's, we've already got the spirit of Antichrist. We've got false teachers of Antichrist. But he says, you've got to understand Antichrist himself is coming. A man is coming. He is the product of all that leads to death and he sets himself up in opposition to every religion. He himself takes his seat in the temple of God to show you that he really claims to be God. I expect you to remember now how I talked about this when I was with you. You will probably also remember how I used to talk about a restraining power which would operate until the time should come for the emergence of this man. Even, and I know a lot of times we say, oh, that's the church and the church has got to be raptured out and that's the restraining power. Um, there's no reason to believe that that has to be the church. It could simply be the hand of God. The removal of the restraining power simply could mean God says, I'm holding this at bay and now I'm lifting my hand. We don't know that. Um, evil is already insidiously at work, but its activities are restricted until what I've called the restraining power of God is removed. When that happens, the lawless man will be plainly seen, though the truth of the Lord Jesus spells his doom and the radiance of his coming, the Lord Jesus will be his utter destruction. See, no matter what we do with the seven mountains, which we ought to go after, no matter what we do to make society better, which we ought to go after, the bottom line is it's not going to be fixed until daddy gets home from work. It's not going to be fixed until Jesus comes. The lawless man is produced by the spirit of evil and armed with all the force, wonder, and signs that falsehood can devise. To those involved in this dying world, he will come with evil's undiluted power to deceive. There's delusion. His weapon is deception. For they have refused to love the truth which could have saved them. Loved ones, when the people of God minimize the word of God, like is happening in our seminaries and our Bible colleges, and God have mercy happening in, I think, the majority of our churches, where in the majority of our churches it is estimated that less than 40% of people believe that the Bible is the authoritary, uh, uh, authoritative word of God. will come with evil's undiluted power to deceive for they have refused the love of the truth which could have saved them. God sends upon them therefore the full force of evil's delusion. Do you know that's where we are in these last days? We are at the place right now. We are at the place right now where God says you can throw yourself into the word and the truth of the word or unrestrained, unrestricted delusion will be poured out into your midst so that they put their faith in an utter fraud and meet the inevitable judgment of all who have refused to believe the truth and who have made evil their playfellow. There's going to be just a form of godliness. Now that's number one. Three things to look for. Times will be difficult, character will be marginalized, and the, the church will generally present a form of godliness. You say, oh, that's what the world does. That's what atheists do. They're not interested in any form of godliness. It's the church. He talks about the great falling away, the great apostasy. I'm telling you, the greatest damnable move in the last days will lie at the doorstep of the church that walks away from truth and tries to be intellectually compatible, that tries to be socially compliant, 
that has traded the idea of holiness for the idea of tolerance. That's where the trouble comes. Number two, there will be a worldwide delusion. Guys, y'all are going to have, hey, pay attention to me. You're slowing me down. We got to get this done. The waffles are almost done at home. There will be a worldwide delusion. Now, I, I, you can study this on your own, but I want to just hit some things very quickly. Number one, during this time of delusion, there will be a great rejection of the truth. This is what Paul said. They, all of this happens, Paul said. Antichrist rises to power, Paul says, because we reject the truth. Okay? Number two, there will be, because truth is rejected, a great falling away. These are in your notes, right, guys? Okay, a great falling away, implying a defection or an abandonment. Number three, there will be a great delusion about God's view of sin. When you read Genesis 3 and the temptation of Eve by the serpent, what you find is a three-part dismantling of biblical truth where he says, this is what God said, but this is what God means. God said it's for your good, but it's for his good. And I encourage you just to look at the notes and go through that. Number four, there will be a great delusion about the return of Christ. You know what Peter said? He said, when it comes time for the Lord will return, he says, this will be the response of the people of God. All things continue as they have always been. My daddy's generation talked about the return of Christ. My great grandpa's generation talked about the return of Christ. And it's true, every generation has always talked about the return of Christ. Every generation thought they might be the generation that saw the return of Christ. But can I tell you something? That's not because they were stupid. It's not even because they were wrong. In your DNA is the spiritual expectation that any day Jesus may come. I want to tell you, there's something wrong with a generation that doesn't believe Jesus may come in their day. There's something wrong with a church that says, oh, we've heard all of this before. And Peter said, all things will continue as they were. And there's one more before we kind of wrap it up. There will be a great delusion about the gospel. Please understand this. The gospel has sunk to new lows in the eyes of the church. It's no longer a transformative power. We, 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 you say, what is the gospel? The gospel has about five very basic components. And when you take one of these components away, you have emasculated the gospel. Uh, now, it, it begins with the, the foundation we build upon is that God is a loving creator and we are the object of his creation. We fell into sin through rebellion. Everything that's wrong with the planet is our fault. It might not be my fault, but it's my fault. It's our fault. Mankind fell after being divinely, specially created by God. And God created a remedy through a Savior, through a Messiah. Now, this is where we get into a little bit of detail. Jesus has always been God. And God came in the form of man, born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death. He was physically raised from the grave by the power of God. And he sits at the right hand of God where he ever lives to make intercession for us. And he's coming back to receive us unto himself. Anytime you take any of that away from the gospel, you've robbed the gospel. Okay? And, and, but we also need to understand this final leg of the stool. You remember God's a loving creator. We fell. He created a Messiah. The fourth leg of the stool is this. We have to make a decision of what to do with Messiah. So that's why Jesus said this, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. The world says, oh, sin, sin is comparable. I'm not a sinner because I'm better than that person. But sin is about what we do toward God ourselves. He said the Holy Spirit has to tell the difference, uh, tell them the truth about judgment, uh, or excuse me, about righteousness. Because you can always find somebody that you're better than. You might look at the chart and say, well, I'm here. Mother Teresa's way up here. But oh, that guy I used to date, he's way down here. You can always claw yourself up high enough to get out of the water. 
But he says that's not what righteousness is based on. And then he said, you've got to understand the truth about judgment. The Holy Spirit has to convince everyone that we are hopelessly lost, that I need a Savior, and without the Savior, I am lost. That's in it. If I can talk you into that, somebody else can talk you out of that. But the Holy Spirit is at work to teach the truth about the gospel and the final thing that he says, marking the end times, is there will be flawed thinking. There will be flawed thinking. We will live in a world that says there's plenty of time or I'm okay. All is as it was before or this is just a myth. This is a myth. It's Dr. Stephen Hawking and wrote a book and he ended a book. I was intrigued by his ending. He said, he said, uh, he was talking about morality. He was talking about the possibility of God. He said, I see these things. I won't bore you with the detail. I mean, it's interesting, but it's take too long. He said, I see these details and that tells me what, but he said, I don't understand why. And if I could ever understand why, I would know the mind of God. Stephen Hawking at that time was on a spiritual journey. And what he said was, I know this is true. I know this is true, but I don't understand why this is true. Now, he wrote a later book and said that science explains everything. And he rejected philosophy, rejected religion. But what I'm trying to tell you is this. This idea of delusion produces flawed thinking. We were talking about trying to help someone that's struggling with Alzheimer's. And, and um, the person I was talking to said, well, we need to write this down so they can remember this. We need to put this before them so they can see that and remember this. And I know what it was like with my mom. A person with Alzheimer's, is the problem is not their memory. The problem is their processing. You can write everything down, but they don't process. This means nothing. Are you hearing me? It means nothing because they process wrong. This is not just a matter of trying to prove someone wrong. This is a matter of changing the way they process and the way they think. And that's only the work of the Holy Spirit. Christian life lessons. How then should we live? What do we do? Loved ones, to avoid delusion, we live in tune with the Spirit. We live in tune with the Spirit. We let the Spirit rule and reign in our lives. Number two, we live in the community of faith. Find a community of faith. If you can't get out to a church, connect with a church online, connect with a group in your home, get back into the community of faith. Number three, stop filling your mind with the world's perspective. Because I want to tell you, the Bible says it twice. There's a way that seems right to a man. But in the end, it always produces death. It's in there twice. Just because it makes sense to you, just because it seems the intuitive way to go, does not make it right. Abraham Lincoln asked a fellow one time when they were in a political debate, he said, well, that dog over there, he's got four legs. And the man said, yes. He says, well, let's call his tail a leg. Now, how many legs does he have? The man said, well, if you call his tail a leg, he's got five. Abraham Lincoln said, you're crazy. You can call that tail a leg all day long, but he still only got four legs. So Abraham Lincoln was saying, you can't change truth by changing your processing. It has to come back to the truth. Um, stop filling your mind with the world's perspective. And to every child of God, I'd say this, recommit to a scriptural worldview. That means I will not only study the Bible, I will believe it and obey it. We have too many people trying to follow Jesus, letting the Bible be a what if, an impossibility. And well, that's one way of viewing life. His word his word is the foundation for our lives. And whether it's in the assemblies of God, the Roman Catholic church, the Lutheran church, whatever church, whatever church, the, the church growth movement, the biggest battle going on in our churches today is over the word of God. Is it truth or does it contain truth? Is it infallible? Is it inspired word of God? Is it the all sufficient document for our faith and practice? Is it everything that it says it is, or is it something less? I will not only study the Bible, I'll believe it and I'll obey it. And I believe it's everything it says it is. I will not only pray, I will listen. I will live for the spirit, not for the flesh. We got to go.
I know we've got to go. Um, and again, the last two Sundays, it's been very important and we've gone a little longer on the lesson because of the things we've talked about. Um, we'll try to get back and treating you a little kinder next week. But I want you to understand this, loved ones. As we march forward to the greatest victory the church in America has ever known, you've got to make two decisions. Am I going to kill Saul or am I going to align myself with the Lord who says the battle is mine? Or, number two, am I going to let every political, sociological, economic view dominate my life? Or am I going to go back to a scriptural principle? Because I'm going to tell you this, everybody's got to face this sooner or later. I know the what ifs. I know the whys. I know the, well, we've tried this and we've tried that. But the bottom line is this, there is never a right way to do a wrong thing. And the kingdom of God is not brought about by the wickedness of man. And I'm just going to be honest. I'm just, I just don't know any other way to say it. You've got to decide if you're going to be a well-intentioned dragon that destroys everything you're trying to save by allying yourself with the wrong stuff? Or are you going to put your sword in the ground and say, I could solve all my problems, but something tells me if I solve my problems this way, it will only create more problems. The churches in America are going to be filled with people who've got to decide, am I going to take matters into my own hands? Or am I going to take a step back and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. Has the church made mistakes? Only during the time that we're awake and asleep. Has the church gone down wrong paths? Absolutely. But it's like I told a guy the other day, he said, you know, the reason I'm not a Christian, he says, Christianity has been responsible. Uh, he was from a Jewish background and he considered the Nazis to be Christians, which I don't. But uh, he said, there's been so many millions of deaths caused by religion. And I said, I understand. And I said, that's so wrong. It's horrible. But I said, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about the millions and millions and millions of death caused by atheism? I said, look how many people Stalin killed. Look how many people Mao killed. Look how many people Lenin killed. And all of those millions upon millions of deaths were caused by a pursuit that said religion is not real. Oh, friends, this, this is not an age when we can set every philosophical thing right. But this is an age when we can decide if we're going to fully align with the word of God. Father, we're done. We're done. We ask for your word to come. We ask you to help us to do the right thing in the right way. Don't let us walk away from our responsibility. Don't let us walk away from what we need to deal with. But Lord, let us do it in partnership with you. Help us to remember the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. There's a lot of Saul systems that need to be brought down. There are a lot of Saul's that don't deserve the kingdom. But Lord, we want to say as a church, we commit to the Lord of hosts. We commit to winning the battle your way. And if you're here or if you're listening online and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please, please understand that the scripture says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All you need to do, it's, it's simple. It's not simplistic. It's not cheap, but it has already been paid for. You can come to Jesus and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Bible says that he will forgive our sins. We will pass from death to life. If you're here, you can come forward. We'll help you with that. If you're online and you pray that prayer and want information, contact us. We'll send some information to you and be in touch with you. But right now, we want to say thank you for joining us today. And loved ones, understand, understand we're walking on holy ground. We're moving into an inheritance. We're cautiously approaching the day when God will begin to do something in our nation that we've never imagined has been done or could possibly even be done. 
We are all been reeling from the virus and reeling from our anger and reeling from our frustration. But I tell you what is happening. God is settling and stabilizing the heart of his people. And we're seeing something we've never seen before. Saul has to go, but God is the one that removes him. Do your work, we pray in Jesus' name. I love you. For those of you that are here, I know they'll be transitioning online. Those of you that are here, the ministry team will be moving into the hallway. Uh, they'll be out there to pray for you if you have needs. Justin, are we having folks come forward and then we'll help, help escort them over to the place where you can be prayed for. I love you. God bless you. I love you more than you know. You're loved and you're missed and you're prayed for. God bless you.